Classical Christian education is about so much more than teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Well, it's even more than just Christian education. It is human soul formation. It is about shaping students who love what God loves. So how do we cultivate their affections? Certainly, it's everything from our curriculum and our classrooms to our own personal interactions and the culture we create both in our homes and at school. How do we help Generation Z order their affections and loves so that they pursue what is true, good, and beautiful, and do so all the while living in and engaging the daily world and all of its brokenness? You don't want to miss these important and ambitious topics that we're going to discuss here in this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Davies Owens here. Grateful, as always, you've taken time to listen. I'm so appreciative of so many of you listening literally from the ends of the earth. And it is amazing listeners that we have that are in various international locations, folks who are serving in brand new startup schools. I know I've heard from a lot of you. It's always good to hear your vision, your enthusiasm, coming together with other families to start a school. It's a pioneering work. It's important work. I know others of you are maybe new as uh, teachers or maybe new families at legacy schools that have been around 20, 30 plus years God is moving through this movement called Classical Christian Education to raise up the next generation. And we love having these conversations, talking about all things classical Christian, kind of classical Christian 101. Why do we do these interesting things like read great books and study Latin? What's that all about? We also like to look at just best practices around parenting. Back to our friend Keith McCurdy and certainly welcome your input to ask questions to Keith once every few months or quarter, depending on how often we get questions in. If you want to email info at basecamplive.com for Keith McCurdy, our uh, Christian counselor and family therapist who's often on, who has a lot of wisdom for raising the next generation, drop us a line at info at Basecamp Live. Let us know what questions you have for Keith and where you're listening from, what's on your mind. It's just good to hear from you, bottom line. And thank you for taking time to listen. We're also grateful today for our sponsors, Classical Academic Press, CLT. That's the Classic Learning Test the Focus Group, and the Good Agency. We appreciate their support and their partnerships. Well, the topic today is one deserving of probably multiple podcasts. It is sort of the question of questions, which is really how do we order the loves of our students, specifically Gen Zers? They're the ones that are uh, primarily in our building these days, um, certainly at the middle and high school level. What are the questions that we should be asking ourselves about how to do this better? And are there historical voices like, Augustine that we should listen to. And that is exactly where we're going in this conversation with Dr. Joseph Clare. He serves as the executive dean of the cultural enterprise at George Fox University, which encompasses the humanities and theology and education. He's also an associate professor of theology and culture. Before joining George Fox almost a decade ago, he earned his PhD in religion and ethics and politics through Princeton University, while also working there as an assistant instructor. He's also had opportunities in graduate work um, in other settings, and including uh, an MPhil at the University of Cambridge as a Gates Cambridge Scholar. He also holds a master's degree from Fordham and Duke University, as well as a bachelor's degree from Wheaton College. He is also a prolific writer. He has written on uh, various topics around Augustine, the book Discerning the Good in the Letters and Sermons of Augustine, and reading Augustine on education, formation, citizenship, and the lost purpose of learning. I commend all of those to you. When he's not uh, working as a scholar, he lives on a hobby farm outside of Newburgh, Oregon with his wife and their four children. You'll hear more about that in this conversation uh, with him. And so without further ado, here's my conversation on how to shape and form the affections of Gen Zers with Dr. Joseph Clare. Well, Dr. Joseph Clare, welcome to Basecamp Live. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you, Davies. It's good to have you on. We have um, had many a conversation together. Love what you're doing there at George Fox and just appreciate. I know you've been um, involved and in even speaking into a lot of classical Christian schools around the country. Give folks just a little bit of your background, kind of where where have you, I've given your formal bio, but a little bit of your story. Yeah, I am. Um, 
a native of the Northwest, came to Christ seriously in high school and kind of wove my way through secular public university to a um, Christian liberal arts college and kind of retroactively had a classical Christian education by learning to stitch my love of God and love of learning together um, there. And then really apprenticed myself to Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, my my hero, and who I think is kind of the fountainhead in some ways of this first kind of merger of the biblical world and the classical inheritance. Um, and yeah, so I got to come back to the Northwest found a new great books honors program at George Fox. At the same time, we were launching our four kids into school and had learned about classical Christian ed through a friend um, in Princeton and and put our kids in here in Newburgh. And it was really cool, like fusion of what we were doing in great books education at the college and then learning about what my kids were up to in the classical Christian world and realized there was such an affinity and connection there. And so really the second book I got to write, Augustine on Education, Lost Purpose of Learning, was kind of a moment where I merged my love of Augustine and coming out of grad school world with what I was seeing happen in my kids' lives um, in, in classical Christian, what I was seeing happen in the seminar room in the Great Books Honors Program. And so it was kind of this conversation. I was a dialogue with Augustine about learning. So wow. that's, that's how that came about. Yeah. We're going to get into Augustine in just a moment and some of your story on it, but you were, you're in a, in a really interesting kind of strategic position in that you're watching, um, you know, class after class of students coming through and, you know, over the generations, different shifts that are happening. I mean, give us a, just a sense. What are you seeing there at George Fox in terms of, you know, maybe the freshman classes they come in and what's going well, what's maybe more challenging. If you just had to make some broad you know, observations of this generation. What are you saying? Yeah, I think the immediate aftermath of um, the pandemic on learning for students has been palpable in terms of student preparation. So this is, you know, one of the things I love about um, the classical Christian model and its pedagogy that I think um, you know, certain students have suffered even even harder from our our kind of disastrous experiments with online learning in certain cases. But I think at the at the soul level, um, beyond just learning outcomes, there's a there's a heightened sense that although students are technologically proficient in ways that you and I aren't, and certainly our parents or grandparents, they're digital natives, and that's going to have all sorts of advantages for them in terms of their career, you know, possibilities and we're not going to roll, you know, lest you think we're rolling technology back, you know, chat GPT and artificial intelligence curve is just about to begin. You know, we can talk about that more later. But at the level of the soul there, it's not just that um, the phone in your pocket is distracting and we're in the age of tech extraction, you know, with with Gen Z. But the phone's ability, the screen's ability to fuse um our desires and affections, our image of ourself and our hunt for identity and purpose, and to package it in such an immediate and appealing and slick way that, that also is um, incredibly, um, incredibly damaging and vulnerable in terms of um, relationship formation and solidification of who you are in Christ. Like, I think we have yet to even begin to put our finger on how psychologically challenging that is for our mm. students and our kids to be formed in that world. And so obviously we're going to talk about the habits of the heart and the household and and tech, you know, the digitally wise family. But I, I think you can't um, it's not just a matter of of home sort of discipline. It actually has to do with our identity formation in Christ at the deepest level. So yeah. it's, it's actually important. Yeah. Well, as we talk about a lot of times on this podcast, I mean, the reason most of us who are listening are involved in classical Christian education is because we believe it is, it's kind of the, the last best hope. I mean, Jesus is the last best hope, but in terms of maybe the second last best hope would be, could we get part of that 16,000 plus hour experience of being um, in front of our students, we know it's the old adage, what they're reading and who they're hanging out with pretty much forms who you are. And mm. so our, our ability to form the good, uh, within our students is very much a part of what we're setting out to do. And yet we've got these voices that are screaming very loudly in opposite directions. And 
So yeah, I think you know we're we're the topic of today. I love this because it is the question: is how do we form, uh, how do we reorder the loves and make sure that our students are loving what God loves? And in particular, this generation you mentioned, Gen Z, maybe just kind of remind folks, um, kind of who, wh- when did we leave the millennials? Actually, the millennials used to be the students. Now they're the parents. I'm really getting older here, and the, <laughs> and the Gen Zers. <laughs> who I believe are sort of uh, kind of in that, I think it was like mid mid to late nineties to mid two thousands or so. So kind of what uh, 12 to 25 year olds kind of in the, I mean, basically our, our logic rhetoric students, that's who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't keep up. Yeah. I think we're the, what's, who's coming? The grammar schools are now, I think considered the alphas maybe. Is that the, anyhow? So what are you seeing with these yeah. Gen Zers and, and their shaping of affections and loves? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword, as I said. So we've, I've just have been journeying through Colossians and, and kind of rethinking Augustine's, you know, famous definition of virtue, which is, he kind of boils it down in City of God 15, this idea that um, virtue is fundamentally about ordering your affections toward the good, toward the higher things. And and Paul says in Colossians, you know, the, um, the epithumia in Greek, this kind of like over desire is connected to idolatry. And so there's always been this like challenge of for human beings to make good things, ultimate things, you know, in that kind of fundamental sense of the idolatry of the heart. You can take your good affection for beautiful things or for, you know, alcohol for adults or whatever. And all of a sudden it's, it's, it's an addiction. It's a distraction. It's, it's destruction, even in some cases. So we're all plagued by, I think, the idols of the heart. But how technology um, and the phone in particular and our digital lives um, fuse that pursuit um, and sort of like multiplication of your affections and the idols of the heart with your search for purpose and identity um, is, it, it, yeah, I think that this notion that there's some self, there's some life out there that's going on that is the true you, the purposeful you. And if you could just click on it or purchase it or see it or follow it enough, that that sense of like purpose chasing that's associated with the image curation and self-creation and, you know, sort of distraction. It's a, it's a, it's a strong cocktail. So I, I, you know, I continue to just be really proud of any kind of classroom space where there's a seminar room or a Harkness table where there's no technology and there's this presence present to the text, to the questions, to each other. I feel like that's countercultural, um, increasingly countercultural for this generation. I also think, you know, um, there was a, there's an interesting study, the Gates foundation just put out this fall. And it was like the first really comprehensive study of why, Uh, folks aren't going to college at the same rate. So not only are we heading into a demographic decline where the American population is dipping for the first time, there's less people college bound um, in the next couple of years because of the the birth rate decline after the financial meltdown in 2008 and nine. Um, But you're also just seeing people who maybe routinely would have enrolled in a four-year college not go. And some of the reasons were cost and return on investment, career preparation, um, but here were two of the, the stunning statistics. These were like top four statistics of why people aren't going to college. One was anxiety about the college experience itself. So the actual like initiation into adulthood, the rite of passage that college has represented for generations is seen as a threat, is seen as something that you're not ready and formed and wings wavering, you know, to get out of the nest and fly and that's that failure to launch kids into adulthood um, is, is palpable. So our mental health, I mean, the the kind of anxiety and it's sort of like cognate, you know, things on campus, like we can't keep up with the mental health, you know, sort of needs, quote unquote, of our students. And so you can't keep spending budget. You add more. It's like, do we use an app and have a robot tell them how to take care of the yeah. mental health? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, well, well, and that's, I, you're right. I mean, the problem has become so pervasive and, and all of a sudden, you know, just the ability to be a confident individual who knows, you know, you know who you are and you know whose you are and you know where you're going. All of a sudden these things are even more 
attractive and beautiful and and appealing. Um, I want to, you know, you you've really done a tremendous amount of research on, on Augustine and his voice. I was uh, we were chatting before we jumped into this. Um, even as I was doing a little research on this, I didn't realize that the Roman Empire and you know in its day obviously predated Augustine, but it had it was more familiar maybe than I had thought of in terms of it too had very much lost its purpose, its disorientation of aims, you know, career, wealth, fame were really the goals and a lot of confusion. And then when Augustine came along, um, you know, he really kind of built back up off of that. So this isn't the first time we've fallen in the proverbial ditch, but talk a little bit about for, I mean, maybe back up one step, just for who is Augustine um, and why isn't it St. Augustine? It's St. Augustine, Florida, but it's Augustine. Anyway, I get so confused. Potatoes and potatoes. So it probably doesn't matter, but um Talk, who, who is this guy we keep talking about? Somebody's probably listening. Go to, what are you, who are you guys talking no about? No one, no one I know was alive in, in uh, 430 AD to tell me how his name was pronounced, but yeah, I, I go with Augustine. So yeah, he, you know, he, Martin Luther, the reformer said after Jesus and Paul, no one has done more to shape the Christian faith and life than this guy, Augustine of Hippo. He's a church father, early Christian author. And we have more of his writings than anyone else in the ancient world, like times a lot, way more than Plato and Cicero. We have a hundred books and 250 letters and over a thousand sermons. We actually continue to find sermons because they weren't all cataloged and you find them in monasteries in Europe and libraries. And he was just prolific. And I think the beauty of his life from a Christian perspective is he had lived as a pagan. He had a conversion. So his famous conversion in the garden in Milan is, is in, uh, in confessions is like, that's like the first, you know, <laughs> proto-evangelical moment. You know, he'd been putting off the laying, giving his life to Christ, and he did, and his life is transformed. But furthermore, he also was a classical educator. So the, the crowning achievement of the liberal arts rhetoric, he taught rhetoric for the Roman Empire and worked his way up to the very top office of the imperial professor of rhetoric. The empire was out of Milan at that time. And it was in that atmosphere as educator that he then was converted. And so his first task was like, oh, could there be a Christian liberal arts curriculum? And so he started into that in the Lake District um, at Kasikiakum after his conversion. And then his life circumstances led him deeper and deeper into church involvement. He moved back home to North Africa, became a pastor, ultimately a bishop. And so his ambitions as educator and kind of contemplative, you know, philosopher turned more into pastor and preacher. And yet he never gives up on these questions of how Christians ought to think about the liberal arts and, and classical education. And the thing I think that intrigued me most was he's a fan of classical education so far as he's a fan of learning and our capacity to use the logic of our minds to know the logos of the world, you know, to measure it, you know, through quantity and to understand it through quality and the power of language. And yet he also saw the defects and pitfalls of classical education. He saw how it was wrapped up with pagan religion and mythology. He saw how it was wrapped up with pride and power and prestige um, as, you know, sort of an entree into your political career as a rhetorician. And um, I think that it's that kind of, critical yet grateful appreciation of the classical inheritance and the the sensitivity to the way the biblical worldview actually clashes at key points with a classical understanding that intrigued me most. So I think, you know, reading Augustine and getting Augustine, as I said, is kind of the fountainhead of, of classical Christian learning. And in some ways he's so modern. I mean, people, most of our students read the confessions, which is kind of his spiritual autobiography, first autobiography in Western history. No one had written about their own life in this way. And of course he's not writing to find himself. He's writing to see the fingerprints of God and how God found him. And it's that story really in which he relates his own miseducation as a Roman, you know, aspiring elite in the way in which it deformed his loves and his love of learning um, which is a beautiful and pure thing, part of our image bearingness as human beings to be learners, all human beings by nature desire to know, was was twisted culturally toward his own, you know, sort of like career trajectory. And and uh, yeah, I think it's that that sense of how he was converted not only to Christ, but he was converted out of uh, a bad education, which struck me in the confessions. Yeah. And again, nothing new under the sun. So we think of this moment in 2023 as being, you know, the lowest point yet. Well, there've definitely been other points where there was a, a skewing of what one should love or a forgetting of what one should love. And, and Augustine is really 
you know, very much part of that process of helping us to rightly order the things that we love, which again is what we're all in this for as classical Christian educators. So I want to take a quick break and we come back. I want to get into one of the things I know that uh, so, so, so often we quote him as well because of this notion that we are, is, you know, John 17, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. So you know, what I love is that he's not saying, hey, let's all go build a fortress and hide inside of it and, you know, uh, live out in the desert, but let's actually figure out how to engage the world as messy and, and complicated as it is, but do so in a way that doesn't compromise who we are, but allows us to be in. So there's this kind of two kingdom tension that he talks about in City of God that I think is irrelevant as well for how we help young people order their love. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Dr. Joseph Clare. Our promising young people need a new kind of college that cuts through the failings of the mainstream university and challenges them to turn their conviction into action. Introducing Hildegard College, a new classical Christian college that reclaims the fearless pursuit of the good and the true for the leadership and virtue we need from the next generation. Hildegard uniquely combines a classical liberal arts curriculum with an education in entrepreneurship. Our program is focused and affordable, created for young scholars who seek the rigor of classical education and also the practical knowledge they need to put their passion into practice. Hildegard is located in the cultural hub of Costa Mesa, California, and is currently accepting applications for its inaugural freshman class. Learn more at hildegard.college. Joseph, one of the things that's such a reality, um, as I right before break talked about, I mean, even Jesus' notion uh, that we're to be in the world and not of it. And I think we all increasingly, as we read the news, start maybe wishing for not being in this world and being, uh, not necessarily going to heaven yet, but just being in a place that isn't so contentious. And here we are trying to raise up a generation of young people. And there's a point at which we need to insulate them and protect them in the grammar school. And, but there's also a point where we have to begin to help them discern how to navigate life and whether that's technology or just peer pressure. And, um, you know, quote, I say all the time, I call it the 301 problem. We kind of regulate our culture as classical Christian folks between 745 and three, but 301, Cyclops, a one-eyed screen monster comes out and there's this whole nother voice. And I, I, I was talking to a head of school recently who said, you know, one of the concerns is that we're really inadvertently allowing dualism to creep in, meaning we have created a, a generation, or we could, this is not for sure what we don't want to do this, but, you know, students that are very comfortable and very genuinely committed to the first half of the day, wearing the uniforms and, you know, quoting Plato's Republic and doing all those virtuous things we say that they should do and that they say back that they really mean. But at 301, they shift almost into a different culture. It's like, you know, mom is from Germany and dad's from France and they love both mom and dad and they speak both languages and they're not being insincere. But at 301, they're shifting into a very different culture and they don't see the disparity between the two. How do we help students love what is true, good and beautiful 24 seven, not just in the morning half of the day? Yeah, totally. I think this is the challenge. It's the challenge for the church, challenge for Christian education, full stop, is that there's a there's a need for um, differentiating yourself from the world, from the forces out there, you know, from the corruption, the decay. And that's the beauty. It's the city on a hill. It's the Benedict option. We're doing something different. We're going to survive the kind of ruins, you know, and and the decay and the the chaos, but there's a fine line there between loving the true and the good and the beautiful and having a coherent enough family and household and church and community that the practices and the worldview match up. And then it turning into a kind of um, resignation from the world, resentment, alienation. And I, you know, I've never felt not, obviously I'm in the middle of my life. I hope God willing, but I've never felt the score of alienation as high as I have in our culture in the sense of like, people just feel like this used to be my town and it isn't any longer. This used to be my country and it's not, this used to be my church and it's not, it's just everywhere you look, the sense of like, um, the sense of alienation, um, estrangement. And I think the beautiful thing about the gospel and Paul, the apostle is just emphatic about this is that we are fundamentally alienated from the world because we're alienated from God and God in Christ has set to reconcile, to draw back together what's alienated and broken in Christ. And that that gives us a vision of culture and of the world that sees us as being part of that reconciliation in the body of Christ, drawing things back together into wholeness. I also think the Christian narrative of a, of a beginning, a fall, 
a, a redemption movement and a coming reconciliation and new creation gives us a different perspective on history and time and where we are that ought to make us not um, cloistered or retrospective exclusively in our education, but actually forward and future oriented, seeing the the novelties of culture as always in need of illumination and redirection toward their true end in God. Now, sometimes culture is off the rails. It's dark and demonic and death metallic or whatever. But I also think there's times in which technology, even artificial intelligence, all these things are going to be um neutral in the, in the sense that they need to be put to good use and toward good ends for human flourishing, for the glory of God. And I think my son, actually, I, I, I applaud and admire him. And of course I would, but August named kind of, uh, toward, uh, toward my hero, Augustine, but he's just one of these kids who seems seemingly just loves the Latin, the classical piano lessons, the logic, and the, all these just loves his classical education and is just always watching these interesting little YouTube clips on the future of artificial intelligence and where things are going. And I've just been, try, I've tried to be very guarded, you know, doesn't have his own computer, doesn't have his phone, you know, he's a teenager. I'm, we're trying to do it within bounds and discipline, but we're trying not to set up a paradox for him that his education is about something else in the past. And we're actually trying to run from this world and go back or do an end run around modernity and technology. But we're saying, this is forming you so that you can know how to discern what is true and good and beautiful in the world and put it to the right use for God's glory and for others. Yeah. Now, as you were saying, I was thinking about a conversation I had at a, at a classical conference recently, and, and they were just talking about the dangers of trying to you know, which flavor classical Christian are you? Oh, well, you know, we, we hearken back to the little house days. Well, we go back further. We hearken back to the, uh, you know, the 12th century. Oh, well, we hearken back. And it's like, well, that's good. And there are values in going through all those time periods, but we're not just trying to build to your point, a, a group of people that are just time machining back into the past. And, and yet, I mean, the, the, the topic on the table here is how then are we in the world, but not of it? What does Augustine say about that in a way that and again, it's different. We're all, we all have different tolerances and temptations. You know, what is one vice for one is not interesting to another. And so I guess that's always the difficulty. I mean, for one kid, if they're on their phone for an hour a day, it's probably going to, you know, cook their affections for other kids. No problem at all. They're deeply grounded. And so it, it, this is messy. It's not a simple fix. I know that. It is. Yeah. I, Augustine, Augustine has, um, this notion of the two cities, it's the, you know, the tale of two cities, the city of God and the city of man or the earthly city. And there's an, there's a, there's a sense in which those two cities are at polar opposites at odds with another in an eschatological end of the world kind of sense, like the city of God, that's like saints, angels, love God, love neighbor, city of man, that's bad city of devil. It's destruction. You don't want to be there. But Augustine's point is that you actually can't perfectly align um, any earthly people or people group with one of those two cities, even the church in the city of God is not in per perfect alignment. He loves Jesus's parables of the wheat and the tares and, you know, the mixed things, because that actually is, we're going to find out that not until the end, when God separates thing, will we know where your heart really was. But he says the two cities are founded by two different kinds of love, a love that is oriented toward God and toward neighbor and toward what, what is good and true and beautiful, or an excessively selfish, self-interested love that actually moves you away from God and others. And, and that love will be shown for what it is in the end. And so he often calls the church um, in Latin, it's ecclesia per mixtum, I think is the, the Latin, but it's the sense of like, the church is a mixed bag. He even talks about our own souls as being a mixed bag sometimes, that sometimes we're being torn between mm -hmm. the two. And I think for Augustine, that was a real resistance to the perfectionism of some of the early Christian heresies that he was responding to and Donatism and Pelagianism that would hold up the church as this paragon of perfection and excellence and enclave itself in a kind of ascetic rigor. And Augustine just thought that actually um, that that dynamic that actually sets up a worse dynamic for a kind of more vicious sense of pride and judgmentalism and criticism often associated with nostalgia for those heresies that they were going back to this more perfect thing that was always being lost. And Augustine 
I, I think it's, you know, you were telling me about that, that sermon by uh, Thomas Chalmers, Chalmers, the expulsive power of a new affection. And I, I think he's totally right. He says there's two paths to curing yourself of worldliness. There is the preaching against worldliness, you know, and the idols of the heart, or there is preaching about the beauty and glory and power of Jesus Christ and his love and actually stirring the heart up toward the God who is in Christ, the visible image of the invisible God, the creator of all, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. I mean, that's that's Paul's approach in the letters is not bashing you over your worldliness, but is actually pointing to yeah. this thing that is way more lovely and lovable than anything you've set your mind to on earth. And I think that has to be part of our DNA. Well, I think that's the, it's humans. I mean, we're going to, we're moved by something more beautiful. I mean, this is the, you know, and to the Chalmers point or, you know, often in that same vein, talk about old Nancy Reagan and her just say no to drugs. It's like, well, that was a great campaign, but you never told anybody to say yes to anything. And it didn't really work. And, uh, it reminds, you know, it reminds me years ago, um, I was back in college studying at Stratford upon Avon. I remember going past a shop window and there was this print that I ended up purchasing called the broad and the narrow way. And it's from the late 1800s. And it's this fascinating, it's like, where's Waldo? There are all these little images and there's the big, big doorway or the big path that goes down the Broadway. And then there's the narrow way through the little gate and there's scripture next to all of these various things. And then the Broadway, there's the gambling house and all these bad things. And it ends up at the very end, you know, the flames and the fire. And then, but on the, the narrow way, you go past, you know, the statues and the, and the people that look rather miserable standing there, but you kind of eventually get to heaven. And it feels like that's the choice set that, you know, is still very much alive today. But again, Augustine's like, well, wait a minute, we can, not that you need to go hang out at the gambling house and, you know, and be a chameleon Christian, but this is the tension. I mean, this is not something new to the church and Augustine saw it. We have seen it throughout the centuries. And here we are trying to lead students in this same, you know, either, either just retract or fall into it. We don't teach them how to navigate it. Seems like. No, exactly. And I think that that adds the power of of classical Christian ed is that you should be rather than creating dualistic lives and selves of this kind of perfect buttoned up, you know, um, uh, suited student, you know, studying Latin. And then you go out and your real self is on your phone in the world or doing sports after school. You're helping students at it at its best. You're helping students out of the dualism that would see their faith as this very small, narrow, thing that you do on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, maybe, and you read in your Bible and it's kind of boring. And you never really wrap your head around it. And then you go to school and you see the great Renaissance art or you read Shakespeare and it's, that's something else altogether. No, it's like, you're actually giving them the integrated vision that all truth is God's truth. I mean, that was the kind of clarion call of the, of the early Christians who saw that we didn't want to get rid of the inheritance of the classical world. We just needed to discerningly see, you know, what was worth keeping. And so I think, I think exactly like we, I think, you know, C.S. Lewis's great uh, sermon and essay, the weight of glory gets that, that it's actually the, the, the glimpses and brushes with beauty in the world, you know, whether in the natural world or in works of art. That's that's stirring up a hunger for uh, Christ Himself, the source of all goodness, truth, and beauty. But unless your heart can make that that you know journey up the ladder to Christ and affection, those little beauties, those little truths, those little things that draw your affections can actually destroy you if you don't follow them up to their source in God. Because you'll never be beautiful enough if you're worshiping beauty. You'll never have enough money and things if you're worship. I mean, it's actually like we're freeing ourselves by returning to the source and seeing the source of those things in Christ. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and it certainly puts the, you know, the challenge for us as educators and as parents is making sure that what we present is, is a, be- is beautiful. And that's, we have the right materials, we have the truth. And, and we're going to jump into that here in part three is really talk about, you know, how do we, how do we pull that off? Because it's certainly possible to, read the great books and have the big conversations and, and do it in such a way that's really not competitively as beautiful. I mean, we've got to win the beauty game here if we're going to truly shape the love. I mean, I think it's certainly Augustine's point of view on this. So why, well, why don't we take a quick break? Cause I know folks are eager to hear, okay, well, how do we do that? How do we actually help young people love what God loves? It's a, it's not a, 
again, a simple fix. It's a constant pushing and pulling, but um, I love Augustine's own story. I mean, he was, he was not just a perfect kid who grew up in a Christian home and everything was just right. He was kind of a, a probably, I don't know if you'd met, bumped into him around age 13, what do you think you would have run into? Pretty, uh, little, a little, a little punk. <laughs> yeah. Punk Augustine. I yeah, there you so. go. Purple hair on a skateboard. Like that ain't going anywhere. Like, wait a minute, <laughs> check back in 10 years. <laughs> of course, his mom prayed profusely for him. I have to think that made some difference. Good old Monica. There you go. Yep. All right. We'll be right back and continue this great conversation. At DBU, we believe the future is in God's hands. And our mission is to prepare students to be a light in a dark world. Through a vibrant community of faith, students are encouraged to discover their calling and make it a reality. They are challenged to integrate their faith in all of their studies and throughout their daily lives. They are shaped to become Christ-centered servant leaders whose heart is to transform the world, all for the glory of God. Are you ready for your future? Then let's go. Do you wonder if the traditional system of higher education is the best way to keep your student on the path to flourishing? Are you tired of having to choose between a solid Christian education and practical, marketable skills? We've got good news. You don't have to settle, and your student doesn't have to make the choice between a solid Christian education and skills development. At Excel College, we've combined a world-class, classical Christian education with an apprenticeship model that allows students to gain hands-on experience in the field of their choice while providing them with the context to grow intellectually, spiritually, practically, professionally, and missionally, all the while graduating debt-free. At Excel College, students learn how to build a life, not just make a living. Want to find out more? Sign up for a virtual presentation on our website at www.thexcelcollege.com backslash visit. So Joseph, thinking about the opportunity, this incredible weighty opportunity that we all have as parents and as educators to really make beautiful things beautiful. I mean, there's no question God set the world up beautifully and to know Jesus is beautiful and to see all of the things that have been created in his image, you know, the, the, the reflected um, general revelation, specific revelation, there's so much out there. How do we get out of the way um, as parents and educators of students discovering and having their loves move so stirringly that they want that beauty over the world's beauty? Yeah. I, I think as teachers and parents, I mean, in loco parentis, you know, there's a lot of overlapping collaboration um, between these two kind of mentors and elders. And I think, you know, one of the challenges of technology in my own life is that it's hollowed out um, how it's hollowed out my interest in my local community because I get more interested in these like super versions of reality, you know, of better visuals, better thoughts on Twitter, better, you know, photos. And I, I mean, I, I think the main thing we can do for our students and our kids is model a new way of being fully present where we are in building local community in our schools and our churches and our homes, giving up on the glamor of seeking a platform and actually just like investing fully right where we are. And I think, you know, our household, it's not so much what we're saying no to, although we have rules about, you know, technology and when you'll get a phone and we're on the, the tight end, all those things, but it's about having a lush, robust household culture around the table, around questions that are asked at the table. And we live on a hobby farm. We've talked about that. It's like the interest of chickens and having a horse. And we just got a golden retriever puppy this weekend. And all those things, that sense of like shared labor and shared enjoyment of the home, um, obviously with the habits of prayer and scripture. And I mean, I we go in fits and starts, you know, some weeks and months and seasons are better than us with devotional life and all these things. But the main thing is that the home is a place of, of hospitality and friendship and welcomeness and beauty. And same goes for the school. I mean, I think the main thing you can do as a teacher in your own classroom or as a leader of one of these schools is to think about how do I create the atmosphere that's most conducive to the mind and the heart returning to the true and the good and the beautiful and the lovely and ultimately to God. And it can be in a, a mobile, uh, you know, sort of trailer, you know, startup classroom. I mean, our we've had humble origins with our classical Christian school here and 
and they continue. But I think the way in which we we set up the space and adorn it and carry ourselves in those spaces does a lot to create an atmosphere of openness to, to God and to the truth. And it's fun. It's fundamentally really simple symbols and rituals and practices that can reorient. So it's a time of like reading certain things aloud in the morning at our house, you know, it's a lighting of the candle at the dinner table. I mean, stuff sounds so like obvious and simple, but it's like, you actually can consecrate um, your, your daily common ordinary life in such a way that it points to something bigger um, than what it is. Well, it sounds like, you know, to kind of deconstruct a little bit what you're saying, I mean, when you light the candle and you have kind of this liturgy of your home and, and liturgy of the school, if you want to use that language, it it's creating really glimpses of the sacred. And I guess I'm just trying to, I'm really trying to <laughs> articulate how, if this is a, a tug of war match between, you know, the, the, the world on one side and, and, and the things of beauty of God on the other, I mean, how do we outweigh and pull harder so that students say, I want that more than I want the other thing. And, and it, it, it really does, you know, it's, it's Eugene Peterson's, it's a long obedient in the same direction. It's kind of over and over and over like, okay, that was a beautiful gathering at our table this morning for breakfast. And in comparison to the latest, you know, five Snapchat feeds, those felt kind of empty. I mean, I, I think it must be at that very practical, basic level, you know, you eat enough steak, the fruit loop just doesn't taste so good anymore. Is that basically <laughs> what we're saying? I think, I think it is always with a dash of, of humor and not taking yourselves too seriously, but I think experimenting with these things, um, that such that, you know, um, you know, that there's more to life than the, the cheap thrills of entertainment and pleasure. Like, you know, that there's pleasures that are deeper than these kind of mere fleeting, you know, sorts of things, the pleasures of a good conversation like this one, you know, like I'm, we would have bored our 13 year old selves to tears with this conversation. And yet for us, it's like, we see, that's why, that's why I mentioned <laughs> fruit loops to make sure. I know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But as you get, you know, deeper into the intellectual life and friendship, you realize there's like great pleasures in pursuing truth and conversation with another. So I think it's like simply, how do you, how do you train the heart and the mind, um, of yourself, but of your kids, of your students to, to taste those pleasures such that they will know the difference uh, between the steak and, and the fruit loop. And I think that that's an ongoing thing, but it's about winning with deeper beauty and deeper truth, deeper goodness, rather than just beating up against the world all the time. Yeah. And I think that's the, you're right. And I think that's a fair, like whether as a parent or as an educator, just if you were to transcribe your day, how much of the time are you talking about, you know, the battle for, you know, or battle against, or, you know, hide and fight. And I mean, like there's a place for that, but that's a lot of exhausting. You can't live on adrenaline and fight or flight all the time. So could you live over here in this world of pursuing beauty? So what does that look? I mean, if, if you can maybe think of, you know, give me a snapshot in the classroom when you've got the kids coming in, who've been on the fruit loops and they're sitting at the table and you break out the dusty book and their eyes roll over <laughs> potentially how do, and then all of a sudden there's this sort of discovery moment of like, Oh, wow, that's deep. That's rich. And now the bell rings and they don't want to leave. Like, what was it? Can you think of some moments like that? I'm sure they're having all the time. Yeah. I mean, I hope they do. I think they, I think creating the the atmosphere of the classroom through the way you carry yourself and prepare yourself to be in the classroom. I, I think there's something about the, your own spiritual preparation of the heart and the mind as you go into the work of teaching and if you're leading, setting up a school culture that has that sense, not just burning off your email, you know, right before you head into the students. And I do think that sense of like how you set up the classroom, how you get to know students name and engage with them, those little practices and rituals of recognizing their inherent, you know, dignity and worth as image bearing creatures and the kind of seriousness that we take um, students, uh, sort of as human beings, as learners. So obviously not just catering and a kind of cult of, of youth in a modern sense, but a sense of awareness of, of the personhood of the dignity that they have and seeing them not as 
the future down the line of the church and of the kingdom, but as right now, you know, as, as, as being accountable uh, to their relationship with God and each other. I've always been struck by these ancient, you know, traditions of initiation into adulthood, which we push now past college to like, I think 35 is when you're an adult in, in the U S now, but like all ancient cultures, including Judaism, you know, in our, our sense of the old Testament of 13 years old, here you go. Here's a celebration and a welcome. You're now accountable for your decision. You're a member of the community at this age. And so we're going to have like a really important party to formalize that. That says something about um, who God speaks to and what he's doing in the world and the seriousness with which we see, um, you know, students in their journeys. You think of God speaking to Mary, you know, <laughs> telling Mary he's got a word for, her, you know, the angel Gabriel, like, wow, 13 or 14 or however old. So it gives you, I just think we have to actually build a classroom that recognizes that capacity and recognizes that sort of like um, seriousness of, of who our students are as learners, as children of God, as, as potential receivers of his word, you know? And I think, I mean, that, that happens, I think in every day in classical Christian schools, you know, think of these little moments, like where there's a grammar school speech meet going on and, you know, parents and grandparents are aghast that this kid just recited the entire Gettysburg address from memory and they can't remember their phone number. And, you know, you just think, we, we lower the bar way too far down. And I think students want to aspire to something of greatness. And maybe that's part of the underlying malady of our culture. Everything is just sort of so base and boring and stupid. And it's like you create something beautiful and like people want to be around that. They, they're drawn to it. It's rich. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I do think, you know, the classical Christian education movement will will fail, I think, if it's, inadequately yoked to the mission of the kingdom in the church and inadequately pointing to Christ as the truly lovable and worthy thing. If it just becomes about learnedness or intellectual agility or the classical world or ancient languages. And I think we have done ourselves a disservice, I think, for me and certainly for this generation of minimizing the adventure of the Christian life, the adventure of following Christ and becoming uh, made more Christ-like in our character and our virtues. And it's like that that's the ultimate and eternal adventure that God has called us on to of discipleship. And so how do we adequately weave that into formative milestones? I think along the way, my, we've had some interaction with, um, with trail life, um, the, uh, organization for young men. And the thing I've loved about it is actually stitches together milestones of sort of formation that are connected to wilderness adventure and skills. And it's like things that are, you know, experiences that you will not forget, you know, in terms of pushing you to your limits and max. Of course, this is what military academies have worked out it's what the Jesuits had in, in the 16th century worked out is like an actual like milestone adventure of following Jesus that is really rigorous, but full of grace and transformation. Like how do our schools actually think about those kind of yeah. formative sequences for our students, you know? Well, I think it, you're hitting on something very important, which is it, even the vision of who is, who is the teacher. If you're hiring teachers, you know, I was actually talking to someone who's in the, uh, in the recruiting business and our, um, not that I'm going anywhere, but just in, in our movement, trying to help source this huge need now for teachers and heads and, and just the, you know, the, the, the assumption is, especially for those outsider movement trying to step in, oh, well, you just, you're just looking for people that are trained in the classics that have the PhD, therefore they'll make perfect teachers and say, well, that that's part of it. But the reality is they need to understand how to move the, the hearts and the souls of our students as you're describing. And, and some of that is maybe better learned from examples outside of our own profession where just shut the door and sit in a, sit in a desk and flip to page 800 and whatever and read the thing. I mean, <laughs> like yeah, that might move you, but it might not if you have other things clamoring for you. So, so that's kind of an, I think that's a good reminder. So I think as teachers it, shifting over, you talked, I mean, as a parent, you've got your hobby farm and other things. I mean, what, what can parents do who are listening that just want to, again, help point the loves of their children in the right direction and just other, other practical suggestions you've got. Yeah. I, I, my own challenge recently has just simply been seeing the ordinary life, the home life, the common life there for the real delight that it actually is and re-engaging with each of our kids. Like 
blocks on the floor for the three-year-old, you know, and, and building the house, like going out to brush the goats and the horse with the teenage girl. Who's just horse crazy. Like actually seeing my life. Uh, I'm, I'm so prone um, toward the kind of totalizing culture of work and career and success and achievement that can hollow out again, just the richness of the fullness that life is God has given us. And I think we have to, I mean, you can you could really boil a lot of this stuff down to caught and not taught in the work of parenting, having very little to do with all your instructions and much more to do with them watching the attitude of your own heart toward your life. And yeah, I just I just find that I I want the habits of the household. I want to enjoy um, the the fullness of a meal and a conversation with kids without my phone, without in the back of my mind, jogging through all the things I can do to get ahead at work or the thing I'm going to write next, just that sense of fully, completely enjoying and being present to the common life, which the common life at home is not just entertainment, pleasure, um, and escape. It's, it's mutual labor and shared work. And there's such delight in that. I think of if your kids can catch wind that you are delighting in that ordinary rhythm of work and rest um, and labor and delight that God has scripted into his creation, then they're going to they're gonna catch that. You know, that, That's beautiful. And it doesn't require a goat necessarily then to go and <laughs> pet or, <laughs> but uh, maybe. maybe so. No, that's really helpful. And I think, again, I think we're all, we live in this age where, you know, it's every answer has to some seemingly be, you know, completely new and dynamic and unheard of. And sometimes it's like, well, wait, all I got to do is just go on a walk with my child and have a thoughtful meal and put my phone down. Yeah, that that actually is going to bear a lot more fruit than maybe you realize. And and I think you're right. I mean, the it's easy to go those kids today when it's weird. I've seen a lot of grandparents and won't put their iPads down. You know, I, so there's a it's not bound to any one generation. It's really the cultural moment we're in. But uh, any rate, we could keep chatting. I am so grateful for your encouraging word. And thanks for taking us back to uh, Augustine and reminding us that we're not the first folks in human history to have discovered uh, the crumbling of the soul and the need for a rediscovery through an attraction to that, which is beautiful person of Christ and through our education and through our home life. So Joseph, thanks for your, your encouragement. Yeah, thanks, Davies. Glad to be with you. Yeah, we'll have to have you back and continue this great conversation. Thanks again. Hey there, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Davies' daughter, Hannah, here. And I want to congratulate this amazing podcast on almost five years of incredible content, enriching interviews and over 200 episodes. So that has brought so much encouragement to people. And thank you for being a part of that. Thank you for supporting this message, this mission. And there are a couple ways that you can help in sharing that message. First of all, please leave a five-star review on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. You can also share it with a friend. That's a great way to get the message out about Basecamp Live. And of course, share your story with us at info at basecamplive.com. There we'll also answer all your questions and more. And any topics that you'd like to hear too, please send them there to info at basecamplive.com. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks.